Retrogram, Revisiting TV Futures from the Past. An examination of yesteryear's television science fiction, fantasy, spy-fi, horror, and superhero shows. Commencing Retrogram. Retrogram number 7436, Canyon Jumping, the week of September 1st, 1974. Or maybe it's just the morning of September 7th. Welcome to Retrogram. Pick a week between 1970 and 1990, watch all of the sci-fi, horror, superhero, and fantasy shows that week, stir vigorously, and voila, you get this podcast. Though you could be forgiven if you forgot exactly when these shows aired, two of them were the series premieres of much-loved live-action kids' shows that would each run for three years, and one of them was the first installment in the second year of an animated version of a legendary live-action show. September 7th was a pretty jam-packed Saturday morning, and this is a rare retrogram in that for the genres that this podcast covers, all of the shows were clustered into one part of one day. But the really big news was the building anticipation for a big event the following day, Sunday, September 8th, 1974. That would be the day that Evil Knievel would jump over Snake River Canyon while buckled into a custom rocket-powered motorcycle called the Sky Cycle X2. Or, as many sports commentators believed, he'd die trying. What kind of death-defying spectacle could possibly compete with that? Maybe dinosaurs and superheroes and space pirates. Let's rewind to the week of September 1st, 1974, or more specifically to the morning of September 7th. Break out some sugary breakfast cereal and just keep your pajamas on because we're just getting started. The Lost, Season 1, Episode 1, Chaka, Saturday morning, September 7th, 1974, on NBC. The story so far. Rick Marshall and his kids, Will and Holly, were on a simple family trip, some camping, some rapid water rafting, through some kind of dimensional portal stranding them in the past. Yeah, that spiraled out of control pretty fast. Now they're stuck trying to put those camping skills to use in a wilderness world swarming with dinosaurs and primitive primate people called the Pakuni. And there's a third, even more terrifying group of residents of this world that they haven't even met yet because this is just the first episode. This is one camping trip the Marshalls won't forget. That's assuming they survive it. Chaka the Marshalls are lying low and doing some dinosaur spotting, still trying to get the lay of the land, when a Tyrannosaurus rears its head. Must be dinner time, and the Marshalls don't want to be on the menu, so they race for safety. Once they've found a safe spot that seems to be, at least for the moment, dinosaur-free, it's time to compare notes. Rick could swear he saw three moons in the sky last night, so this might not even be Earth. And yet there are recognizable dinosaurs. Oh, hey, there's one now. Time to keep moving. 
Rick tells Will to stay here and watch after his sister, while Rick scouts ahead to see if the coast is clear to make a break for the cave that the marshals are calling home, at least for now. But Holly hears something and takes off to investigate over Will's protests. But she's right, there is something to see here. A tall, tapered pyramid, a pylon, obviously artificially constructed, not any kind of natural rock formation. This was built, put here, by something intelligent. This is either really good news or really bad news. That's when Will and Holly hear the rhythmically chanting voices. They peek over a nearby rock and see three humanoid creatures covered from head to toe with hair, some kind of primates gathered in a circle, chanting. Then a Tyrannosaurus bursts out of the jungle near these creatures, so now there are some kind of primates gathered in a circle, screaming and getting ready to be breakfast. Two of the primates take off running. The third, the youngest, is injured and gets away as best he can, but he's just about the textbook definition of dead meat. Will picks the creature up and carries him as he and Holly run back to that spot where their dad just told them to stay. But this may or may not be the brightest move, since stealing a hungry dinosaur's dinner gets you one hangry dinosaur. Pit stop back at the rocks. The creature's leg is injured, and he needs water. Will takes a moment to show his new furry friend what a canteen is, what it contains, and how to drink from it. Will even tries to perform some simple introductions. I'm Will. This is Holly. And then the creature tries to repeat their names, having a little trouble with the pronunciations, and then points at himself and says, Chaka. I think he's introducing himself. So we're dealing with some intelligence here. Will tries to keep the conversation going, pointing at both himself and Holly and saying, Human, waiting to see if Chaka gets it. Chaka points at Will and Holly and repeats human, and then points to himself and says, Paku, Pakuni. Rick returns in one piece and says he thinks he's spotted something like chimpanzees running from the dinosaurs. Oh, I see you guys have met one. Best thing to do is bring him back to the cave to see if there's anything that can be done for his leg. Will carries Chaka again as the marshals make their way back to, well, cave sweet cave. It's set high enough into the face of a cliff that dinosaurs won't be climbing in, and the opening is just big enough for humans to walk in, and yet small enough to block the maw of a hungry dinosaur. Free rent, no electricity, but some kind of crystal formations set into the walls give off light at night. No parking spaces provided. It'll do. Rick and Holly climb up to prepare the basket that Rick has rigged over a primitive pulley system with ropes so they can lift Chaka up to the cave mouth without making him climb on his already hurt leg. Will stays with Chaka, waiting for the basket to be lowered. A roar in the distance heralds the arrival of the marshal's other frequent visitor of the day, Grumpy the Tyrannosaurus. He bites the rope in half, so the basket is toast. Will grabs Chaka and hides between some rocks at the base of the cliff, providing at least a little bit of shelter from Grumpy. Rick and Holly pick up a fallen tree branch that they had brought into the cave, and they run for the cave opening with it, jamming it into the dinosaur's mouth. Grumpy wanders off with the world's biggest toothpick lodged into his teeth, while the marshals get to work on repairing the rope to haul Chaka up to safety. Nighttime in the marshals' cave. Chaka is amazed at how easily Holly starts a campfire. Rick and Will start the process of putting Chaka's leg in a splint. Chaka just stares at everything they're doing in amazement, but does so while sitting still. Trust has been established. Holly asks if they can keep Chaka, you know, as a pet. Rick shakes his head. Chaka is an intelligent indigenous life form. People can't own other people.
but Shaka can stay as long as he wants to, and he'll probably want to find his fellow Pakuni at some point. The three moons have risen, the pterodons are wheeling in the sky. It's time to call it a night. The marshals bed down in their sleeping bags. Chaka is still wide awake, though. He's getting some mobility back. Chaka leaves the cave, but he isn't unnoticed. As Chaka walks away from the cliff face, the marshals follow and watch from a discreet distance. They're just as fascinated by him as he is by them, and Rick thinks he saw Chaka take something of theirs from the cave. Yeah, it's Rick's lighter, the magic fire maker. A dinosaur in the distance spooks Chaka, and he starts doubling back toward the cave, running into the marshals. That's when a group of Pakuni in a tree start throwing things at the marshals. Then they jump down to ground level. They have primitive spears, three spears to be exact, and one of them is handed to Chaka as he begins holding the marshals at bay with his fellow Pakuni. But before anybody can harpoon anybody else, all of this commotion has woken Grumpy. And everyone parts ways to get home in a hurry. Chaka and his fellow Pakuni hide in the jungle, and the marshals hightail it back to their cave. Well, so much for making friends with the natives. But in the morning, Will Marshall awakens to find a huge pile of fruit at the entrance of the cave. When Rick wakes up, he spots what looks like Paku footprints in the dirt at ground level. Chaka watches from the bushes as his new friends, the humans who saved his life. Start to enjoy a celebratory feast, the end, and also just the beginning. According to the on-screen credits, at least, Land of the Lost was created by Sid and Marty Croft and Alan Foshko. The Croft brothers owned 1970s kids' live-action TV, managing to land shows on several networks simultaneously. Effectively putting them into competition with themselves numerous times, their hallmarks are an almost trippy, colorfully stylized look and feel to their shows, coaxing pretty decent performances out of their actors and special effects, costumes, and sets that you have to admire for the sheer scope of production they always seem to be attempting on a shoestring budget. The brothers first gained acclaim as puppeteers, appearing on the Ed Sullivan Show, the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, the Merv Griffin Show, and the Dean Martin Show, before creating their first series together, H.R. Puffin Stuff, in 1969. From there, the hits kept on coming throughout the 1970s. They created the Bugaloos, Lidsville, Sigmund and the Sea Monsters, and the Far Out Space Nuts, and they were producers on shows they didn't create, including The Lost Saucer, Electro Woman and Dinah Girl, Doctor Shrinker. Wonderbug, the Donnie and Marie Show, the Brady Bunch Variety Hour, the Bay City Rollers Show, Magic Mongo, Bigfoot and Wild Boy, Pink Lady and Jeff, and continued into the 1980s and 90s with Barbara Mandrell and the Mandrell Sisters and DC Follies. They've also been producers on various revivals of their shows as well, and they're still at it today. Co-creator Alan Foshko is a bit more of a mystery. He has two IMDb credits, and Land of the Lost is one of them. The other being a directing credit for an obscure movie in 1970. Interestingly, during the second season, no one is credited on screen with creating the show, and for the third season, only the Croft brothers are credited with creating the series. So, who was Alan Foshko? He was something of a whiz kid in Hollywood, getting into the business at a very young age. Part of the show's very thoroughly thought-out, well-realized world was that Alan was putting together really elaborate storyboards in an art form with which he had just found a major affinity: collage. Midway through the series, 
probably about the time that his name vanished from the credits, he retired from Hollywood, moved out east, and spent more time on something that had been fascinating him even longer than collage, Zen Buddhism. He continued to try to keep a hand in the entertainment industry from afar, but ultimately spent the rest of his life on his own artwork, and as much of a wunderkid as he was in showbiz circles, you have to respect someone's determination to just walk away from it all and find peace elsewhere. We lost Alan Foschko in 2007. This episode was written by David Gerald, who was also the story editor for the first season. Now, although the on-screen credit for creating the series belongs to the Croft brothers and Alan Foschko, David Gerald can probably claim an unsung credit for that as well, making him kind of the fourth beetle of this show's creative team. Once the groundwork had been laid for the characters and the broad outlines of their situation, Gerald set about fleshing out an internal mythology for Land of the Lost that, for an early 70s kids' show, was really impressive. There's a reason plenty of sci-fi and fantasy fans count this show as a pleasure, full stop, nothing guilty about it. Gerald had, of course, gotten his start as a TV writer with the Troubles with Tribbles episode of the original Star Trek, landing him in the inner circle of what can probably claim to be the first sci-fi series on American television to take seriously the idea of building a cohesive internal mythology. He continued to write for the original Star Trek in both its live-action and animated forms, and served as story editor for the entire first season of Land of the Lost, in addition to writing five out of seventeen episodes of that first season. From there he went on to write episodes of Logan's Run, The Biscuits, Tales from the Dark Side, The Real Ghostbusters, the 80s revival of The Twilight Zone, Superboy, Babylon 5, and Sliders. So we will probably be talking more about David and his TV work in future installments of Retrogram. Now, if you think that David Gerald is the only connection between Star Trek and Land of the Lost, hang on to your socks because the credits of this series are full of familiar names. The dinosaur animation was produced at Excelsior Animated Moving Pictures. Excelsior, with the exclamation point, was founded by Gene Warren, one of Hollywood's top stop-motion animators, who had racked up credits on such films as Kronos, The Monster from Green Hell, The Time Machine, Atlantis, The Lost Continent, and Dinosaurus, which is probably what provided the experience most closely related to Land of the Lost. Excelsior, ding, also handled special photographic effects on the short-lived 1977 series Man from Atlantis, as well as 70s films like Black Sunday, Avalanche, and Meteor. So we will be talking about more of the work of Gene Warren and Excelsior, ding, animated moving pictures in other installments of Retrogram. But who designed the dinos inhabiting the Land of the Lost? Dinosaur character design is credited to Hua Chang. Hua Ming Chang gained renown for creating the character maquettes, the three-dimensional study models, for early Walt Disney pictures such as Bambi, Fantasia, and Pinocchio, and he built and operated puppets for 1950s movies like Cat Women of the Moon and Tarantula. He designed the Siamese masks in The King and I, special headdresses for 1963's Cleopatra starring Elizabeth Taylor, and made the forced perspective figures that filled out the crowd scenes in Spartacus. It's about here that Hua Chang began working regularly with a stop-motion animator named, wait for it, Gene Warren, teaming up on Kronos, The Monster from Green Hell, The Time Machine, and yes, Dinosaurus too. In 1964, however, Hua Chang began a long association with another project, starting with creating props for its pilot episode. 
he designed the original flip-open communicator props for Star Trek's prototype episode, The Cage. He continued to provide props and models for the series, whether it was creatures such as the M113 Salt Monster, the Gorn, or Balok's puppet from the Corbomite maneuver. He also built the original tricorder props, Spock's harp, and the Romulan helmets, which saved a lot of money that would have been spent applying prosthetic ears to every Romulan extra any time the Romulans showed up. He also designed props for the first Planet of the Apes movie, and then reunited with Gene Warren when Gene was starting Excelsior, ding, animated moving pictures. The art director on Land of the Lost was Herman Zimmerman. Herman Zimmerman was the production designer for almost every live-action Star Trek spin-off until the early 21st century. He designed the sets of the Enterprise in Star Trek The Next Generation, the space station in Deep Space Nine, and a much earlier Enterprise in Star Trek Enterprise. He redesigned Captain Kirk's Enterprise for the movies Star Trek V and VI, reworked his own Enterprise sets for Star Trek Generations, and then designed the interiors of the Enterprise E in Star Trek First Contact, Insurrection, and Nemesis. He had gotten his start as art director for over 350 episodes of Days of Our Lives in the 1960s, and then began working regularly with the Croft Brothers on Sigmund and the Sea Monsters, Far Out Space Nuts, Dr. Shrinker, and The Donnie and Marie Show. He did a lot of TV movie design work after that, as well as occasional one-off work on shows like Happy Days, Joni Loves Chachi, The New Odd Couple, and The Powers of Matthew Starr, before landing a lengthy run as art director of three shows either simultaneously or overlapping, Cheers, Webster, and Brothers. All three of these shows were produced at Paramount's television division in the 1980s, which put him in the right place at the right time to work on Star Trek. And he's not the only future behind-the-scenes superstar from Star Trek The Next Generation that we find here. Makeup and special costumes for Land of the Lost were designed by Michael Westmore. The Westmore family was virtually a Hollywood makeup dynasty, and Michael was a member of the third generation of that family to work in what had become the family business, starting his makeup work in the 1960s on McHale's Navy and the Monsters, and, as with some of the other creative minds we've already mentioned, began working with the Croft brothers on earlier productions like Sigmund and the Sea Monsters. He came to Land of the Lost fresh off of a surprise hit movie about a boxer called Rocky. You might have heard of it. It's had a few sequels, and Michael Westmore worked on at least three of those as well. Work on the big screen kept Michael Westmore occupied through the rest of the 70s and much of the 80s. Movies such as Capricorn 1, Blade Runner, First Blood, 2010, The Year We Make Contact, Mask, Project X, and Masters of the Universe. He always had plenty of work to do on TV as well, with the miniseries The Day After, and very brief stints between movie projects on Heart to Heart, Charlie's Angels, Bosom Buddies, Amazing Stories, Highway to Heaven, and MacGyver. From there he went on to design, sculpt, and in many cases personally apply the alien makeups for Star Trek The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and Enterprise, and all of the movies featuring the Next Generation cast. For the purposes of this series, he created the Pakuni, and perhaps most memorably of all, the Sleestacks, who wouldn't appear until the second episode. We'll talk more about the cast in a future retrogram dealing with Land of the Lost. This series ran for three years, 
so there's plenty of time to talk about them. But I wanted to make the point alongside the very first episode that there is some world-class world-building going on with this show, particularly in the first season. Regardless of who you want to credit it for, the Crofts, Alan Foschko, or David Gerald, the universe of Land of the Lost is carefully constructed to inspire stories, allow room for them to happen, and to keep a carrot dangling in front of the characters and the audience, the possibility that the Marshalls might find a way home. Part of me wants to make fun of the Marshalls for just chowing down on a bunch of fruit that may or may not be friendly to their human biology, but you know what? Obviously, an unspecified period of time has passed between the plot setup and the opening credits, and here, because the Marshalls already have the cave set up, so I'm going to let this one pass. They've probably figured out what's edible and what isn't. And that brings us into something about a lot of kids' shows that you really have to count as a feature and not a bug. Most of these shows, and you'll notice this about our next show today as well, don't do any kind of introductory episode or origin story. That's confined entirely to the opening credits. In fact, in the case of Land of the Lost, the backstory is sung over banjo music. The production model for these shows is to allow them to be shown in nearly any order in reruns. A season of a Saturday morning children's show in the 1970s was usually between 12 and 15 episodes. Now, Land of the Lost got 17, so it's kind of an extravagant first season order. The idea was that these would be rerun endlessly, and if the show merited continuation, another batch of 6 to 10 episodes might be made to premiere the following fall season, and those would expand the number of episodes in the rerun rotation. Now, despite this, and getting back to the impressive world-building going on in the first season of Land of the Lost, there is an evolution of information. It really helps in the age of streaming and DVD box sets to watch the first three episodes of this series in one sitting. Each one parcels out more information that becomes vital to the characters understanding the world in which they've arrived, and surviving in it as well. Shazam! Season 1, Episode 1, The Joyriders. Aired Saturday morning, September 7, 1974, on CBS. The story so far. Meet Billy Batson. He's a normal kid who travels all over Southern California with his mentor, whose name is Mentor. Mentor has a sweet 73 Dodge Open Road Motorhome for doing all of this traveling, and Billy has a secret. Unlike most kids, he's been chosen by the mythical gods to wield a superpower. When he sees people in trouble, he needs only to utter the word Shazam to transform into Captain Marvel. Uh, this is the DC Captain Marvel, by the way, not the Marvel Captain Marvel. It's complicated. Captain Marvel, with his ability to fly and his super strength, can help mere mortals in need that Billy Batson would never be able to help. The Joyriders Summer. School's out. Teenage boys are bored, hanging out, and they're planning to, uh, borrow a car. Just a little joyride. What could go wrong? One of the kids, Chuck, thinks something could go wrong. These are his friends, and maybe they shouldn't be doing this. But apply a little bit of peer pressure, stir in a heavy dose of fear of missing out, and Chuck is in against his better judgment. But when his older friend Mike manages to steal a red convertible, he's not so in and they leave him behind. 
Better judgment is also on the minds of the mythical elders. Billy and Mentor are driving along, having what Billy describes as a far-out day, when a peal of thunder signals that the elders have something to say. They want to remind Billy that sometimes fear of being rejected by friends can override somebody's better judgment. Billy says he's experienced that feeling, and the elders hope that he can remind someone else that it's okay to listen to that little voice inside that sometimes says no. This far-out day just got kind of heavy, man. That's when Billy and Mentor happen upon Chuck, freshly left behind by his pals. Chuck fears that Billy and Mentor know that he and his friends were up to no good, and he takes off running when Billy jumps out of Mentor's motorhome to help. Billy chases after him, just trying to help, and, you know, there's probably a big misunderstanding here, since being chased after on foot really doesn't always equate to a message of, I just want to help! Just as Billy catches up with Chuck, they're both almost run over by an almost out-of-control red convertible. You know, I don't think Mike knows how to drive that thing. Once they dust themselves off, Chuck runs from Billy again. Billy returns to Mentor, who tells Billy that he may be the most positive role model Chuck has right now. And he's not wrong. Chuck finds his friends back at their hangout, where they tease him and call him a chicken. Hey, Chuck says, I lost my nerve this time. Next time will be different. Mike decides to test that. Let's go find another car to borrow and see what you do this time. First, they're going to stop at the store to grab something to drink, and they tell Chuck not to bother putting a lock on his bike. They'll only be in there a minute. But that's as long as it takes for someone to steal it by the time they come out. With his friends still making fun of him, Chuck is left behind again. Then he sees Billy Batson again. Billy grabs him before he can run this time. Why are you running? What's the problem? When Chuck explains about his bike being stolen, Billy and Mentor give him a lift to the police station to report it. They return him to his hangout and let him off, having given him a gentle earful about not going along with the crowd. But guess who else is here? Mike and Chuck's other friends. They have found another cars with the keys left in the ignition. Before Chuck can try to count himself out of whatever shenanigans they're planning, they open the door of the car, push Chuck in, pile in, and take off at high speed. Mentor and Billy see this happen, and they agree it's time to stop approaching this as Billy Batson and to start approaching it as Captain Marvel. One Shazam later, and Billy has transformed into the superhero, going airborne to try to find the stolen car. Mike is, once again, barely able to drive the ride he's just stolen, and all three of the other kids, including Chuck, are starting to freak out. Mike's going to get them all killed, especially when he spots Captain Marvel in the rearview mirror. Mike brings the car skidding to a stop in a salvage yard, and the kids, including Chuck, bail out and hide in a wrecked van. As Captain Marvel looks for the boys, they're oblivious to a new danger. A crane picks up the van to lift it into the crusher. With the boys inside, Captain Marvel grabs the van, pulls it back down to the ground just enough to let the boys out before the van is picked up again. That was lucky, and now that they're safe, it's time to face the music. Will they own up to their lapse of judgment? Will they wind up behind bars? All of that remains to be seen, but Captain Marvel's work here is done, and the rest is up to the boys. The End Filmation owned 1970 Kids Live Action TV. Well, at least a big chunk of whatever Saturday morning TV real estate wasn't locked down by the Croft Brothers and Hanna-Barbera. 
Michael Gray stars here as Billy Batson. Shazam wasn't Michael's first gig. He had already appeared in Room 222, The Flying Nun, Marcus Welby, M.D., The Brady Bunch, and had made multiple appearances on The Brian Keith Show. But Shazam was his last acting gig for quite some time. He moved on to other pursuits, including owning a flower shop, and only recently resurfaced as an actor again. Les Tremaine stars as Mentor. Not just a character, he's a walking archetype. Les Tremaine was born in England, but he and his family moved to Chicago when he was only four. His resume is vast, stretching back to the late 1940s. He was the voice of the narrator in Forbidden Planet, Major Stone in The Adventures of Rin Tin Tin, and he had a role in the 1953 film version of The War of the Worlds. Later, he started taking on animation voice work, including The Pirates of Dark Water, The New Johnny Quest, and The Smurfs. Les Tremaine died in 2003 at the age of 90. Jackson Bostwick stars as Captain Marvel. Now, before we go any further, I have to point out here that Jackson Bostwick had a small role in the 1971 biopic, Evil Knievel, starring George Hamilton. Now that we've got that out of the way, Jackson was the first Captain Marvel to appear in the Shazam series, as he was replaced early in Season 2 when he missed a filming date while he was being treated for an injury he'd suffered on set the day before. The producers assumed he was trying to force them to give him a raise, and the whole thing wound up in court. Good news is Captain Marvel prevailed once again, with Jackson Bostwick winning the pay owed him for the rest of that season, even though he had already hung up his cape permanently. He appeared in small roles after that. He appeared in bit parts as security guards in both Tron and My Science Project, for example, and he eventually moved into teaching acting. Now, the voices of the elders, in case you're wondering, are Lou Scheimer, one of the Filmation executives and founders, and, in a completely uncredited role, Adam West. Yes, Adam West of Batman fame. I thought that was interesting. Ty Henderson guest stars as Kyle, the only African-American in the cast. Filmation would later cast him as a regular in another live-action Saturday morning series, Space Academy, so we will probably be hearing more from Ty Henderson later. Now, the scene where the stolen convertible is going the wrong way down a one-way street, I don't know, guys. Do you think that might be a visual metaphor for something? Shazam was kind of on the nose with its moralizing, and there's a lot of stilted dialogue. Still, as buttoned up as the show is, I kind of appreciate the somewhat ambiguous ending. We don't know what happens when these four kids wind up in front of a judge. Laws, as they say, vary from state to state, so from a standpoint of storytelling truth, of course, you can't really deliver a pat answer as to what becomes of the boys. And for some young members of the audience, that ambiguity is probably pretty worrisome. And that may be the best reason to do it that way, to worry impressionable viewers enough to scare them straight. Star Trek The Animated Series Season 2, Episode 1, The Pirates of Orion. Aired Saturday morning, September 7, 1974, on NBC. The story so far. The five-year mission of the Federation starship Enterprise continues with Captain James T. Kirk in command, and Mr. Spock, Dr. McCoy, Scotty, Uhura, and the rest of the crew along for the ride, this time with a few new crew members who would have been nearly impossible to show in live action. The Pirates of Orion. 
The Enterprise is en route to Deneb 5, where the crew will be present for the opening ceremonies at a new science academy. And considering that a brief outbreak of a disease called choreocytosis has been a problem of late, everyone aboard is just happy not to be sick anymore. Well, everyone except Spock, who just collapsed on the bridge. In sickbay, Dr. McCoy says choreocytosis is fatal when contracted by a Vulcan, unless a drug called strobilin is administered immediately. Guess what McCoy doesn't happen to have in stock? The ship's computer nominates the planet Beta Canopus as a place the Enterprise needs to visit. It's the nearest planet with strobilin in plentiful supply to the ship's current course. But nearest is a relative term here, and since it'll take longer to get the Enterprise there than Spock has to live, Captain Kirk contacts Starfleet to arrange for any Starfleet ship near Beta Canopus to rendezvous with the Enterprise with the strobilin aboard, cutting that time in half. The Strobelin is loaded onto one ship and then transferred to another ship, the Huron. It's a relay race to beat the clock with the drug needed to save Spock's life. Aboard the Huron, there's a bogey on the radar. Would somebody wipe that off the radar, please? No, really, there's a ship coming in fast on an intercept course. If you can judge a ship by its physical shape, this one doesn't look friendly. And it's picking up speed. Captain O'Shea orders evasive maneuvers, but the hostile ship is faster, and any potential help from the Enterprise or Starfleet is too far away. They're not going to make it. The pursuing ship sends a very short, sweet message. Surrender your cargo or prepare to be destroyed. A distress signal is sent. On the Enterprise, it's obvious that the Huron hasn't made it to the rendezvous point. Also, Spock has passed out again. The synthetic antidote that McCoy has been giving him to try to keep Spock on his feet and alive is losing its effectiveness. Now it's strobilin or nothing, and time is running out. The Enterprise reaches the Huron, finding it adrift with barely enough power for life support. The ship has been attacked, her cargo stolen, her engines left useless. Kirk leads a boarding party, finding O'Shea and the Huron's crew in bad shape. Lieutenant Eriks thinks he can track the hostile ship by a residual radiation signature left by its engines. It's time for Sulu to floor it. The Enterprise follows the ship to an asteroid belt, where the pirate ship's trail ends. And that might not be all that ends there. The minerals in the asteroids are highly volatile, and they'll explode with anything with which they come into contact. An offhand comment from Scotty inspires Kirk. Maybe he should be looking at these asteroids as a weapon to use against the pirates. And there they are. It's a new ship designed for the Orion pirates, and not a very well-armed one at that. The Huron was a shipping vessel not equipped to handle an assault, but the Enterprise outguns the Orions easily, even after they protest that they're citizens of a neutral planet being harassed by the Enterprise. When sensors detect the dilithium that was also stolen from the Huron, Kirk tries to strike a deal. Keep the dilithium. Just let us have the strobilin. The Orion captain will only agree to this if he and Kirk beam down to one of the asteroids simultaneously, which seems a bit fishy. But McCoy reports that Spock is dying. Time's up. Kirk agrees to meet on the asteroid, his life support belt generating a protective field around him. The Orion captain wears a similar device, but the Orions have a plan. Their neutral status will be endangered if anyone ever finds out about their attack on the Huron. So they plan to destroy the Enterprise as well, getting rid of all witnesses by detonating dilithium the Orion is wearing in a backpack. But Scotty is ready for that. While Kirk struggles hand-to-hand -hand with the Orion captain, both of them are beamed to the Enterprise. The Orion captain is disarmed, the Strobelin is finally in Dr. McCoy's hands, and then in Spock's bloodstream, and the Orions have a lot of explaining to do to the Federation. Now, 
I should point out that while I kept saying Orion, and I called the episode Pirates of Orion, throughout the episode, every character pronounces it Orion, which I'm not sure quite how that got started. And again, this is why you put pronouncers in your scripts if you're doing something funky or introducing an unfamiliar word to a cast who may not be aware of it. The Pirates of Orion, or Orion, depending on what you want to call it, was written by Howard Weinstein. Howard is the youngest person who has ever sold a script to Star Trek. He was 19 when his script for the Pirates of Orion was bought. This was far from Howard's only involvement with Star Trek, however, but it was his only screen credit. He went on to write nine official Star Trek novels, spanning the continuing adventures of Captain Kirk and his crew, the crews of The Next Generation, and Deep Space Nine, and he wrote dozens of issues of both DC and Marvel Star Trek comics all the way up through the Voyager years. He also wrote three officially licensed novels based on the original V series, and other books of his own, both fiction and nonfiction. He has said that after the original series, his favorite iteration of Star Trek was Deep Space Nine. Filmation did things as cheaply as possible. Well, that's kind of a daft thing to say. Any production company does that. So let me try to say this more accurately. Filmation cut some serious corners in their attempts to do things as cheaply as possible. There is a scene where McCoy calls the bridge from sickbay to notify them to send Spock down for his next shot of the synthesized drug that is keeping him temporarily able to function. When Kirk tells Spock to go down to sickbay, we change camera angles, if you will, and Dr. McCoy is very visibly standing right behind Captain Kirk's chair. Good job throwing your voice and making it sound like you're on the communicator, Bones. They probably reused a piece of animation from a previous episode to cut corners and save money, and they just hoped that no one would notice that Bones is standing right there. And that's quite a far cry from the attention to detail for which I was praising Filmation not too long ago, discussing their 1979 Flash Gordon animated series. Now, it's weird when Spock says that McCoy's injection is expected to be painful. Not only does that kind of run completely counter to all of the painless hypospray injections that have been seen in either live-action or animated Star Trek so far, but this being a show meant for kids, you'd think they would not want to be reinforcing the notion that shots are painful or bad. It just stuck out as an odd dialogue choice. Something else that sticks out is Uhura is on the boarding party. And that's awesome. Is it my imagination, or did Uhura get to leave the ship more often in cartoon form than she did in live-action form? Now, McCoy despairs on an existential level at the thought of practicing medicine when technology and drugs aren't enough to help Spock any longer. If this was an hour-long live-action Star Trek, there would be a whole discussion just begging to happen there. What makes a doctor a good doctor? Drugs and gizmos, or bedside manner? Or some combination of the above? Considering that Bones spends much of his time with Spock, calling him variations on the theme of you green-blooded, pointy-eared so-and-so, maybe Bones needs to step back and reassess the bedside manner half of that equation and maybe his prejudices along with them. There is a mention made of the Orion's interference in the Babel Conference in the original live-action Star Trek episode Journey to Babel. It's kind of funny, the animated show remembers prior events in Star Trek history more often than the live-action show ever did. 
Overall, it's a nice little story for something that had to be over and done with in 22 minutes. It feels like classic Star Trek, give or take an oddball pronunciation or two, and that really puts it in the top tier of episodes of the animated show. While the foreground animation was the usual filmation standard for this series, not very terribly detailed, some of the background artwork, like the asteroid belt, is just gorgeous. The Huron was a neat addition. We finally had a Federation ship that didn't look just like the Enterprise or a very minor variation on the Enterprise. Sorry, we Star Trek geeks love geeking out over the ships. It's just what we do. By the way, if you're wondering about the order these shows were covered in for this podcast, it's literally the order that they appeared on the air. Land of the Lost aired on NBC at 9 in the morning Central Time, opposite the animated Valley of the Dinosaurs on CBS, ironically. And then discriminating Saturday morning entertainment junkies could switch to CBS at 9.30 for Shazam, and then back to NBC at 10 for Star Trek. That's a pretty good lineup. I'd watch that lineup. Oh, wait, I just did. By the way, side note here, airing opposite both Land of the Lost and Valley of the Dinosaurs, over on ABC, was an animated show called Devlin, about a daredevil stunt motorcyclist who occasionally uses his stunt-jumping skills to rescue those in need. Even if it seems silly to you now, in 1974, we were at peak Evil Knievel, and he kind of ruled pop culture. So, how did the spectacle of superheroes, space pirates, and dinosaurs compare with the real-life spectacle of Evil Knievel, jumping Snake River Canyon in Idaho the next day, strapped into a vehicle that could just as easily have blown up with him in it? Well, sadly, the Saturday morning shows were probably better than the Sunday stunt. For one thing, assuming that the TV had already been bought and paid for, and assuming that the electric bill to keep it turned on had been paid already by your parents, you could watch the Marshall family, Billy Batson, and the crew of the Enterprise just about for free. If you wanted to watch Knievel's death-defying stunt live, however, you had to go to a predetermined location, such as specific theaters or, in larger cities, a few arenas, paying ten bucks a head to watch a live via satellite closed-circuit video feed of the jump. If you made the trip to Snake River Canyon to watch it in person, then you were charged twenty-five bucks to watch it unfold. And 25 bucks was a larger amount of money in 1974 than it is in 2019. And what unfolded was the parachute in mid-flight. The parachute was a safeguard in case the sky cycle fell short of clearing the quarter-mile-wide gap from one side of the canyon to the other, but a fault in the hatch that would be opened in such an event meant that the parachute deployed without being triggered by Knievel. Technically, he did cover that quarter-mile distance, but instead of landing, the parachute deployment changed his trajectory and sent the sky cycle to the bottom of the canyon, where, luckily for its driver, it came to a rough but survivable landing on land. Had the vehicle come down in the Snake River itself, the harness holding Knievel into the driver's seat was too complex to open underwater. While the stunt was considered a failure, Evil Knievel lived to do motorcycle stunts another day. He'd go on to perform other motorcycle jump stunts, though never again in a rocket-powered cycle, which actually had to be registered as an aircraft for the Snake River Canyon jump. 
His legion of fans continued to tune in to his exploits, buy the toys, and wanted to become daredevil motorcyclists themselves. A later failed stunt, his 1977 attempt to ramp a motorcycle over a tank of live sharks, resulted in more serious injuries than anything Knievel suffered in Idaho in 1974. And then, adding insult to injury, the stunt was parodied later that year in an episode of Happy Days, resulting in the phrase now common in the vernacular of TV and film critics, jumping the shark. Ouch. Probably not the cultural mark the evil Knievel wanted to make. Obviously, it was much, much safer to be a superhero or a space pirate or to run from dinosaurs while sitting at home on a shag carpet in your pajamas. And, adding further insult to injury, later that evening, September, Sunday, September 8th, 1974, Evil Knievel's jump was knocked out of the headlines by President Gerald Ford, pardoning recently resigned President Richard Nixon. The Retrogram Podcast was researched, written, and hosted by Earl Green. The show's theme music was composed and performed by Jazar and licensed under Creative Commons. You can find more of his work at freemusicarchive.org. Free Music Archive is also home to lots of other great music. Additional music in this episode was by DZ, also licensed under Creative Commons. A huge thanks to the logbook.com's Patreon supporters. There isn't any canyon they wouldn't jump to keep the site and its various podcasts and videocasts around. If you'd like show transcripts, occasional extra patron-exclusive downloadable trading cards, and early show access, get yourself over to patreon.com slash thelogbook, just like Kevin and Darwin and Javier have done. You can also support the site by buying t-shirts and other goodies from our store at redbubble.com slash people slash thelogbook, or by ordering anything you like through our affiliate links at thelogbook.com slash store from places like Amazon and eBay. You can also subscribe to CBS All Access there. Also, we've just signed up at Coffee, which is ko-fi.com slash thelogbook. If you don't feel like making the ongoing commitment of a Patreon patronage, you can throw us a little something-something via coffee, if you so choose, if you've really enjoyed the show, which we hope you have. Retrogram is a production of thelogbook.com. 